boy, I I am not not pleased with the the bride of Christ at the moment. <laughs> that, that bitch. <laughs> that. <laughs> pastor a podcast about life and set apart ministry each week we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small town parish ministry and in phd work and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can so ethan how was your week this week uh it was good we uh i've been like i said last week i've been sort of wrapping up the semester and going to be over the next couple of days starting papers and different things like that. We went and visited friends this weekend at uh, uh, the town where I used to serve, and, and it, which was very nice. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see if we see if I, we caught the Rona. Um, I hope we did. But my body is still sort of recovering from being around a lot of people. Um, I've discovered that in, in the, the rare times that I've been around people since the lockdown, when I, when I return home for the next couple of days, my body is like, what are all these pathogens? You know, <laughs> what, yeah, are all yeah. these, what are all these foreign things that we have to deal with? And so I'm always like sort of kind of sick for a few days afterwards, just because the you know, if we were, if this was not Corona tide, we would all be, you know, more regularly interacting with kind of random microbes, right? And so, mm-hmm. like, our, our immune systems, you know, we would, they would just deal with it as it goes. And so I've got, I've got kind of like a, like a runny nose, but I've had that runny nose literally since I arrived in, back in Pennsylvania. You know, it's just my body kind of, kind of reacting. But I really, I really think I'm okay. But we did that. Um, I uh, read a really cool book for political theology this week, which I'll talk about a little bit here, um, just because I, I think it's, I think it's interesting. It's interesting to think about. And I also this Friday am going over to my advisor's house with the rest of the. PhD students that are in the Karl Barth class um, because he wants our advice on a paper he's writing for a book on Karl Barth uh, and, you know, like Karl Barth and like political theology or something like that. Um, and, And he wrote, I just finished the essay today, actually. He wrote an essay for that book uh, on Karl Barth, liberation theology, and the alt-right. Ooh. Because, um, which makes sense. Like, he, it all happened in Charlottesville, and he's he's a professor in Charlottesville. And so, 
and it's a fun essay. It, it, it was, it's not fun. It, it was a good, it was good. And, and so I'm writing my thoughts down on that. And he's working with a really interesting, I, I think that the most interesting part of the essay is some of his thoughts on ecclesiology when he kind of reflects on um, uh, in, in the big, the big horrific moment in Charlottesville, because there were a, a handful of small moments, but the big horrific moment in Charlottesville in 2017 is, is when is the big fight amongst the protesters and when the car goes through, it, it, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, uh, Dr. Jones is reflecting on, there is a, a, a line of clergy and faith leaders who had kind of formed the line and counter protest uh, and were sort of demonstrating, you know, by, by singing and loudly and, and putting themselves in between the Nazis and, um, and, and all the shit they were screaming and the, and the statue that they're coming in to try to protect or, or whatever. And Dr. Jones reflects in the paper on like, you know, surely there's the church, right? Like, like we can we can point and say, look, it's the church. But he also kind of goes on to say, but you know, another curious thing happened where counter protesters seeing that the that the Nazi white supremacists were advancing on the on the unmoving faith and clergy folks. Um, the counter protesters then surrounded the line of clergy and faith leaders and and proceeded to like physically defend them against against the Nazis. And you know, which which sparks like like the, the fight, right? Like that sparks like the, the, the scuffle. Well, the white the white supremacist spark the scuffle, but but like you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and uh, Dr. Jones kind of reflects on. He's like, well, well, surely that's the church too, you know, and 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 surely we can we can say that perhaps in some Christian theological way that that we have a kind of growing ecclesiology that 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 the that that the church sort of um, appears, you know, uh, in, in the midst of liberatory action or in the midst of protest against evil or in the midst of all of this stuff that that there is sort of this visible character of the church that we might see in the, the clergy and faith leaders who are there specifically proclaiming the gospel and and having that really be on their lips but then we also see this in, in, in a in in a visible way but also in a sort of invisible way among folks of no religious persuasion, counter-religious persuasions, whatever, um, being moved to to gather around the visible church, right? And and all, all not not out of love necessarily for for what the church is saying in that moment, but but out of out of the movement of God for liberation and the protesting of God against evil and stuff like that. And so it's just this kind of lovely theologizing he does um, uh, with Bart, because because Bart Bart sort of sees the church. Because remember, Bart in, in the church dogmatics, Bart is, as you know, Bart Bart 
is in part railing against the German church who, who think the Nazis are great. And so for Bart, Bart's ecclesiology is kind of interesting in which he, he you know, uh, uh, sort of sees the church as an event and, and less as an institution. It's not that he denies the institution, but, but he wants to say that he wants to be able to say that the German church that that is, you know, hugging Adolf Hitler and is like, "Ooh, this is great," um, you know, the the event of the church has sort of left that institution, right? Like the church can happen somewhere else, and uh, and then Dr. Jones picks that same theme up in liberation thought and stuff like that. And I just think that's a very lovely moment where, where he kind of visions a, a, a sort of um, a, a fluid, um, uh, he doesn't use this language, but, but it reminds me of this, even though it's kind of a strange language, almost, almost fungus-like church. <laughs> mm. You know, where, where it just, it wasn't there a second ago, but then suddenly a stalk appears, you know, like, like it just kind of, it, 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 it kind of comes up, you know, and uh, I thought that was a lovely moment in the essay, so I'm, I'm ready to talk to him about it. So that's cool, as he reflects on that, and he's so British, and so the cadence of his talking, of his writings, I, I hear him speak, you know, I hear his, his, he calls, at one point, he calls the alt-right bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, I mean, it is, but like, be more British, Dr. Jones, you know. Right. Do your best. <laughs> yeah, this is great. This is crazy. Well, where, where are you, where is the, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Like, where is that line? Like, like I, from what I understand, British people say that all the time. Oh, terribly sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's cool. That, that's a cool kind of thing. And so I'm excited to meet and talk with him about that and stuff. Um, yeah. I also, yeah, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that before I keep going? Because I, I just have a couple of things that I want to throw out into the void. <laughs> yeah, I do have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, but, I, but I think that I will save them for, Very good. Uh, for when I talk about my week. No problem. Uh, but continue. Tell me more things. Um, the other thing is that this is pretty cool. So I, I have to start prepare, uh, planning what I'm going to take for next semester. And there's like all kinds of the Christian theology folks are like still on sabbatical or going on sabbatical or only doing different, like certain things. And so like there's like nothing for me. There's there's other stuff for other people, but there's like nothing for me. And um so I was talking to Paul about it and, and he was like, well, I know one of us has to teach something. And so that's, that's going to eventually, you know, get posted. And so you should take that. Uh, there's another class uh, that I'm probably, so I'll probably take that class whenever it's posted, whatever it'll be. Uh, there's another class on that Paul, Paul was like, I mean, they're, they're, the Hebrew Bible one of the Hebrew Bible professors, I can't think of her name, is teaching a class on the interpretation of Job. You know, hmm. would you be interested in that? And and I'm like, maybe. And in my head, I'm like, no, I would not be interested in that. I've already taken a class on Job in seminary. Job has been beaten to death. 
We get it. We get it. He's sad. No. <laughs> it's, it's very sad. Yes, he's very sad. Um, uh, he was like, well, uh, somebody's teaching in, in the American uh, Studies religious tract. Uh, one of the professors is teaching a class on American spirituality. That might be good. So I'll probably take that class. Uh, I don't know what that'll look like, but I'm excited for it. And, uh, and he's like, I, I mean, I don't know. He's like, well, now's a good time. Why don't you, uh, why don't you just take a class somewhere else in the school? And I was like, huh? He was like, yeah, just take a class of the philosophy department or social department or psych department or, you know, the political science department, do whatever. And he gave me a list of all these professors who, who he thinks are really great. And I'm like, well, so I can do that? And he's like, yeah, we'll pay for it. Just do whatever you want. <laughs> and so I'm going to take uh, something like that. Um, I'll take a class. Uh, I'll, when some of those classes are out, I'll see what, what's there. And I'll probably take a class outside of the department. And uh, which I didn't know I could do. So I was like, cool, that's, wow, there you go. And so I'll, uh, I'll take a look at those things and, and figure it out. One of the philosophy professors uh, is interested in the ontology of social structures. Ooh. But I don't know if she's like teaching a class on that. I think that if she does, I might, I might try to take a class like that. But, but he's like, just, just keep an eye on the philosophy stuff because, you know, one of the classes are things like objects, you know, <laughs> and then I'm like, I don't want to take that. <laughs> He's like, or the science of math or, or the philosophy of math. And I'm like, well, that sounds, that sounds a little bit like hell, you know, like, I don't want that, but uh, I'm excited. Like I'm excited when the list comes out to look at some of that. That'll be cool. Um, this book, let me tell you about this book, because I, I think it's, I think it's kind of interesting. We read a book in political theology called uh, Sovereignty and the Sacred. Mm. Um, and it was, it was a good book. Uh, it wasn't super long. It was pretty dense at times, but it was a good book. And it was written by a professor of religion at, in, in Munich, Robert Yelly is his name. And he, so, so the book is about sovereignty and, and like listeners, if you are a political science person, uh, this is probably not that shocking or, or surprising to you, but like somebody who's really not, who, who's really for the first time, ultimately this semester diving into like political theory. I never realized the problem of sovereignty is like a, a, a major thing in the literature. Yeah, you've right? talked about it a lot and I have I have been surprised. Yeah, yeah. Like like I I like like obviously I have talked about it because like with that Schmidt, with Carl Schmidt, you know, like I didn't realize that that, that was like a thing. Like like now I feel kind of silly because I'm like, well, of course it is. Like like what the hell is it you know like, <laughs> like like it's you know how would i even describe it you know outside of these courses like i wouldn't have been able to but but this book sort of takes that on and uh he offers uh a sort of a way 
of, of approaching sovereignty. It's more of a descriptive book, like which is one of the critiques we had of the book, where he seems to make suggestions for a constructive project, but he but he sort of stops short of, of doing a constructive project, which is a little infuriating. Mm. But uh, but he he recommends that um, a turn to the sacred, uh, you know, as described theologically or in in religious scholarship or sociological scholarship, um, uh, it provides maybe a more a fuller picture of sovereignty and what what sovereignty could mean, and uh, he. He's, he looks at um, kind of Hebrew Bible understandings of the relationship between God and Israel and, and the ban, you know, Haram, Haram mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that we see in things like the book of Joshua and stuff like that. And, uh, and then he also looks at Hindu and Buddhist. Um, thought and 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 political thought and mythological thought and, and stuff like that to to kind of explore the re- relationship between the sacred and sovereignty, and and he just makes some really interesting points that um, you know I hadn't really thought about. Like he he spends a lot of time with Max Weber and we read Max Weber in this class, mm-hmm. and and you know offers that that perhaps Max Weber is being too theological and he doesn't realize he is uh, when he describes things like secularization and and the role of the state and stuff like that and and, and it's just really interesting but but rather to kind of try to boil it into a talking point for for right now um sovereignty in the literature you know outside of what Yelly is doing is complicated because a lot of the major theorists of sovereignty, you know, kind of politically and philosophically, have a really hard time talking about sovereignty as something other than like kind of raw, pure power. Hmm. Um, and so, like, obviously, we see that in Schmidt, um, but but we see that. You know, in, in in some other folks as well, like left wing interpreters of Schmidt. Like I mentioned weeks and weeks ago when we first talked about Schmidt, that Schmidt, even though Schmidt is a Nazi and a right winger, Schmidt's work uh, is very very popular among left wing political philosophers because they think Schmidt is is correct. They just don't think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, there's there's a a, a left wing political philosopher named Giorgio Agamben, who Yali kind of works with a ton in his book, who, who is interpreting Schmidt in, in some different ways. And, and all of these thinkers, you know, really just have a hard time, like, envisioning sovereignty or the sovereign as something that is um, uh, uh, governable, has, um, you know, kind of works within structures or or laws or has a content. And so they they talk, Yelly talks about when he talks about some of these thinkers, you know, and, and, and other folks, the the anomic quality of sovereignty, you know, the the without law. Mm-hmm. Um, and he draws a fascinating comparison to 
by the way, to the Protestant understanding of predestination. Um, that that uh, in a you know this this idea of, of that that's a way in which the sacred kind of connects the sovereignty, as Yelly would describe it, like in in Protestant thought, or at least in initial Reformation thought, God is is without law. Uh, and and does what God wants when God wants it. And so why is a person saved in Reformation thinking? A person is saved regardless of their ability to follow or not follow the law. Right. You know, uh, it, it just sort of happens. You know, the sovereign or the sacred uh, decides, you know, just in, in whatever outside of the law, outside of structures, outside of, of governing principles. And, uh, and it's interesting because, and so I finished the book and, and one of the things that I appreciated about the book was Yelly's sort of attempt to show that when we allow things like sacrifice and the sacred into conversations about sovereignty, um, sovereignty ceases to be totally nihilistic like it gets us out of the mental trap right like mm. like because because i think without some of that like it's it's almost impossible to get outside of that mental trap which is i think uh schmidt's sort of point it's what makes schmidt really kind of creepy because schmidt does a good job and folks who kind of work with schmidt do a good job at demonstrating that like um, uh, um, there are laws and, and things that we use to govern ourselves. Okay, where do those, you know, who enforces those laws? Well, well, ultimately, you know, executives enforce those laws, right? Like in the United States, it's the executive branch. In other places, there's some, some comparable things. But, but ultimately, who, who enforces those laws are the laws themselves. The laws are, are in liberal political thought, the laws are, are, are good. Right? right, like like human beings, sort of uh, um, sh uh, any the the idea is that any reasonable human being should be able to go well. Of course, I'll follow these laws. These laws are reasonable and they make sense. You know, but, and and so that that's fine. And Schmidt is able to sort of demonstrate how they suspend in the air from nothing. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, and and that and and so. Schmidt says, okay, what, what is actually powering all of this? Like, what is actually the, that which gives power, you know, uh, to this? And, and for Schmidt, it's sovereignty. Sovereignty gives power to this. And all what sovereignty is, is the raw ability to decide if a law applies or not. You know, you know, it's the state of exception, right? It's the... Mm -hmm. It, it, the sovereign is he who decides on the exceptions, you know, and so, and, and, and Schmidt then is able to say, that's where it all is, that, that's, that's the real, that's what's reality, and, and when folks go, no, that's not true, the only way we can really say, no, that's not true, it is to appeal to some, to, is to appeal to the fact that in some way, the laws or 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 the good or the truth or or whatever is is more than power right 
Mm-hmm. Like, like it's more than that. It, 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 it's, it's, it's something other than kind of raw power. But if we're not really able to do that, we're, we're just sort of trapped in this sovereign trap. You know, we're just trapped in power. Um, and and I, that's why I appreciate Yelly's book, because Yelly is able to connect something that is perhaps more than power, you know, into the question of sovereignty and and is able to kind of uh, 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 do some really interesting work there. Agamben, the left-wing Italian political philosopher who kind of works with Schmidt, uh, goes on and develops some ideas uh, uh, where, where he, he talks about um, uh, the sovereign's ability to, to declare human beings um, outside of the law and therefore not really human beings. Um, and so they can be uh, killed without impunity or with impunity um, because they're not really human beings anyway. And, and uh, uh, he was writing about this in the 90s and, and it's been, and, and, and his thought has sort of been revitalized because of Guantanamo Bay. Right. Um, Guantanamo Bay is supposed, shouldn't exist in a liberal democracy. But, but uh, you know, Agamben is like, what are you talking about? Guantanamo Bay only exists in a liberal democracy. You know, only in a liberal democracy do we, do we sort of sweep under the rug uh, a rock where we put people who we've decided aren't really people, you know, <laughs> in, yeah. in, in a full-blown dictatorship, we just, we just put them in the prison down the street <laughs> um, because that's just where they are. Uh, but it's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. And yeah, mm. it's a question of sovereignty. And, and, and like, and this guy's not like advocating like a Christian understanding of sovereignty. That, that's not what he's doing. Like he's, right. He's applying sort of religious thought to this question, and 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 sort of demonstrating how how it's actually not as simple as as some of these political philosophers want to say it is, um, because there's always this sort of numinous excess element, right? That that human beings have historically come up with alternatives to. Schmidtian state of exception or Agamben's, you know, work or, or some of this stuff that, that there's a sense in which the sovereign and the sacred are, are not, are not merely expressions of, 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 of raw power, but, but are um, ambivalent and, and um, uh, uh, terrifying and um, a comforting kind of all at the same time. And, and now if you kind of take the sacred out of it and you just say, no, the, there's, there's nothing sacred about it, it's, it's just power, then perhaps, perhaps there's, something, there's something bad. Maybe if you take a Marxist approach, like, you know, that says religion and the sacred are inventions of power, then, then yeah, we have a problem. 
that then there's actually no alternative. Um, it becomes a kind of determinism, you know, like uh, which is which is interesting. That's an interesting kind of way of putting it. Like Marxist thought is meant to liberate, but in this case, it it actually just traps us in a cycle. It traps us in a deter in a, in a in a thought loop, you know sovereignty and power exist uh, because of powerful people who control the means of production. Uh, and, and, and the only way we can stop them is by seizing that power, you know, against them and turning it against them. That's sort of Schmidt, even though Schmidt's not a Marxist, that's kind of Schmidt's approach. Like Schmidt says, this is what this is. And that's why we better get to the the baseball bat before the other guy does so that we could beat him to death because otherwise the other guy will kill us you know or we have to get to the baseball bat and take ownership of our country because these liberal thoughts about and the endless talk of liberalism will will continue to just make us weak and then some other guy will get to the baseball bat and kill us you know um but i find that interesting i find that that kind of you know, if, if we if we do like say like what Agamben does as a as a Marxist and, and say, well, of course, the sacred is an illusion. It's an illusion set up by power to you know convince us to not take the baseball bat. Um, that if we say that's true, then then we're sort of trapped. You know, there is there is no. There is no power that cuts through the system, right? There is, there is not that thing that, that is sort of beyond pure power. Um, it's just pure power. I, I don't mean to babble, but like that's part of the, the, the power of like Walter Benjamin's paradigm is like Walter Benjamin, when he envisions, you know, the divine violence, right? The divine default, um, he's envisioning a, some kind of force that cuts across the cycle, you know, and can break us out of the cycle. Whereas somebody like a Schmidt only sees the mythic violence, right? And, and, and it's the question of whoever has control of the mythic violence is the gods, you know? Um, and Yelly, yeah. I think, Yelly, I think is more, identifies the divine violence, right? All right, that that there you go. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, I how European is yes. that whole that whole thought <laughs> structure? Um, yeah, I oh, so I'm reading um Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison while I'm working the polls, and there's a a character who has a whole discourse about um. And it's it's set in uh, mid twentieth century, so they're they're in the fifties and sixties now. Um, and the the chapter I'm in right now is uh, happening around the time of the um, the church bombing that that the four girls are killed in in Birmingham. It's in Birmingham. Um, and yes, yes, I yeah. know what you're talking about. Yes, it is. Um, and. And one of the characters has this this kind of soliloquy where he talks about how um, white people are 
are fundamentally broken. <laughs> like there, there's something fundamentally wrong with white people because white people will just go out and kill black people when black people would not do the same thing to them. Um, like that, that there's something just wrong with white people because they, they take their situation of, of power or authority or like, you know, like white sovereignty in the United States and then just use it to trample all over everybody else. And, and I don't know, I, like, I go back and forth thinking about um, this character and like, whether it is that anybody given power and in the kind of supremacy that that whiteness has in this country, that anybody would behave this way or whether like, there really fundamentally is something in um, in European conceptions of of politics in power that that like come from Europe in the 15th, 16th, 17th century in the Enlightenment even uh, that get transported over here and give us white people this sense that like that we are the sovereign, that we have the power, that we get to choose which rules matter and which ones don't. Um, and like that that whole construction could just be wrong, right? Like that, that there, there are other ways of understanding how the world works and that you don't even have to have this question of sovereignty or these questions of laws that like, that, that that's not a universal human thing that we have thought of, um, but that the emphasis on it is, comes from a particular, like is, is generated in a particular place in a particular time and is just so dominant in our imagination that we can't think of anything else. And I, like, I don't know enough at all. And this, this character is not um, deeply educated or anything like that. Like this character is not meaning to have a political discourse. He's just kind of explaining his actions in the world that he's in. Um, and I and I haven't finished the book. And so I don't think that Toni Morrison is necessarily suggesting a, a larger political theory with this character, more mm. just giving a motivation to this character. But like, that's why, um, that's what's been going through my head as you've been talking about all of this is that like, we can get into these deep discussions and critiques and, and moving pieces around on this chessboard, but like um, maybe we're not supposed to be playing chess. Maybe we're supposed to be playing like kickball. Yeah, maybe. Uh, like, so I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. Like, of course there are, um, you know, this, this sort of question of sovereignty is rooted in a Western political tradition. And, and none of these folks would disagree actually um you know that they, these are these are western political concerns right that's sort of the point of, of identifying some of the genealogical figures right like and also why Gelly go turns to uh east asian religious traditions you know to kind of reconceive of questions of of, of the sacred and and violence and sacrifice and sovereignty uh, to see if there's something in the East that, that the West can learn from, you know, about itself. Like, like, like Schmidt identifies, you know, the Catholic and Protestants for why we're at, you know, he has to talk the way he does, right? Like, like, like it, that Weber does the same thing, and 
So I think all of that is true. I think that um, he, herein lies, you, you've accidentally uh, said something that makes Yelly a little controversial or pointed out something that makes Yelly a little controversial. Yelly believes in, in uh, constants in human nature. And which makes him unpopular among postmoderns. Hmm. Um, and, and he kind of says that. He's like, I, I think there's something about human nature that, that causes us to um, seek things that transcend the law. Hmm. Um, and he can be wrong on that. Like I'm not I'm not saying he's right one way or the other on, on that. But that's sort of fun. that. That's it. But but what makes it important is this is why he is able to to draw a connection between sovereignty and the sacred, because um, the sacred is something that that is constant in human communities, uh, and and um, uh, the sacred is is sort of Yelly might say is that thing that transcends the laws, you know, or, or basic human um, interaction. And that thing can be graced and it can be accursed. Um, you know, and, and like, I think that that, I think that that's provocative. I think, I think that that's interesting, but no, like, I think, I think that you're right. And I think what you're kind of gleaning from the incomparable Tony Morrison is, is correct that that there is something sort of local about these concerns right like there's something western and probably white about these concerns um now if we look at at, at you know the history of, of human beings killing each other that's not a western thing you know that's right. that's an everywhere thing and if we look at um, power structures sort of rooted in, um, there are some people that don't have to work to eat. Right. Uh, which which exists uh, the moment people become agricultural. Um, then, you know, we, we see that that's common too, right? Like, that well, there's now some people that actually that's another really fascinating part of this book. So he, uh, and then I'd like to get off this. I like to hear what's up with you. He talks about you know the sort of ambivalence of the sacred. I mentioned that that, that and I just said that, that that something in the sacred can be graced and it can be accursed. You know, it can be beautiful and it can be horrible. It can be, it can it can draw us and inspire us for two very different reasons. And. Um, he sees that play out in the role of the sacred and in, in religion and, and other things in the move from sort of the hunter and gatherer mentality to an agricultural mentality, where suddenly with agricultural stuff, we find ourselves with a surplus of resources. And this surplus goes on then to support folks who are not who do not have to work in order to eat. Um, and, and he points out that this is, on one hand, this on one hand means that priests can exist. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it also means 
that uh, executioners can too. Mm. You know, mm. like like uh, whereas prior to all of that, yeah, I mean, not really. Like <laughs> neither of these things can exist. You know, uh, uh, you have everybody sort of being their own executioner and priest, which is to say that you really didn't have either of them. You just had people, you know, who who did stuff you know, for their communities in the relatively egalitarian ways, which is the other thing about surplus. Suddenly surplus means that uh, hierarchy must happen. Hmm. Uh, and and he actually, he actually kind of says this and I find this interesting. He's like, I, he, in, in a world of surplus, I, he doesn't think it's possible to have anything other than hierarchy. Hmm. Um, surplus wealth means that. Uh, surplus resources means that. Um, because uh, uh, somebody's got to build the storage tanks. Otherwise, it'll fall. Otherwise, it's not surplus. It, it just you just leave it there to rot. He's like that might be the only way to to uh, get ourselves out of you know some of this stuff might be to uh, just sort of put food on the ground and let it rot. Because then at least we're not storing it up. Then at least we're not hoarding the food. You know, it just rots, it just disappears. Um, which, you know, is, is kind of deeply unsettling in a lot of ways, but like, but I, I find that kind of analysis, the anthropological analysis to be interesting, right? Like surplus is also ambivalent is sort of his point. Like, like, these things that these things that we might say are good are are really ambivalent. Like the sacred, the sacred is also ambivalent. You know, uh, predestination means that uh, there's nothing I uh, can do to go to heaven, which is which on one hand, which is an ambivalent statement. Mm -hmm. You know, if I were uh, if I were so caught up in trying, you know, in trying to uh, follow the rules that I run roughshod over my life and, and I, and I hurt people in the process, um, that is, that means that that's a grace that tells me to stop, like, stop. You, you can't go to heaven doing that. That's not what happens. At the same time, like, it also means that there's nothing I can do to get out of hell. You know, it, it's up to the whims of the sacred, one way or the other. And so it's an ambivalent thing. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, I could talk about this all day, but because uh, <laughs> <laughs> like that, it's this this whole structure is operating without the idea of uh, the sacred, without the possibility of the sacred being holy good um because we we see in this world that uh that any any human who is sovereign really really anything that is sovereign um has this this both good and bad this ambivalence um but then we have like the theological claim that god is good and so so 
so what wins out <laughs> does this kind of cynicism or or maybe just realism and 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 just practically speaking that mm. the world is ambivalent do we go with that or do we hold out hope that god is actually good so that i think that's something that yelly didn't have the tr like the theological training to really ask because right. he's not a theologian which is which is totally cool um and and i would have loved for him to ask a little bit more because I actually think it becomes even more complicated than that, Joe. Like, I, I think that you've asked like a question that I have as well, but like, so so the theological sources that Yelly pulls from are, are mostly Reformation era sources mm -hmm. because, which I understand exactly why he does. Uh, but, but here's the thing, Martin Luther would not, and John Calvin would not say that God is good. Right. You know, and that's actually really important because, um, how, how would I put it? I, I actually don't know if the West, and, and I mean you and I, uh, can, can fully articulate well how God can be both the sovereign and totally good. Hmm. Like you, do you see what I mean? Like, like the 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 concepts. Perhaps we are too Protestant, or perhaps we are too something. I don't know. But but the concepts, um, and it might just be a Western thing for us. I'm willing to go with that. But the concepts kind of brush up against each other. We we have to then qualify what the sovereign means. Like. The sovereign then does not mean he who decides on the state of exception, right? But then we have to then ask, well, what does the sovereign mean? Does the sovereign really mean, you know, that which transcends rules and laws? Okay, well, some laws are good. You know, would God transcend those good laws? Oh, I don't know. Like, like, you know, if he if god does that means god is sovereign but does that mean god is good like or perhaps those good laws aren't really good maybe it matters the reason for god's transcending the laws or breaking those laws in in we see constantly in the gospel maybe not constantly but often in the, enough in the gospel jesus breaking the law in order to do good things and and so maybe we can draw upon that thread a little bit but, uh, but we also see, um, but, but then we have to then kind of juxtapose that with, with kind of a hard thing. Like that, that phenomenon of Jesus breaking the law in order to do a good thing is very much in line with what Yelly wants to say about the sacred, that the sacred is without law. It's above law. Being the source of law, it's above law. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, just like the sovereign. You know, the sovereign is without law. It, the sovereign does whatever the sovereign wants to do. And, and from the sovereign comes the laws, you know, and doesn't have to be bound to them. Um, but, but isn't it good? Isn't order good? Like, like, I'm not trying to lead you or me one way or the other. I'm just working through the problem. Like, mm -hmm. like isn't order good? Of course, order is ambivalent. <laughs> you know? it, it right. does, it's not always good. 
but but is or is is that the abusive order or is that just order on its own right like is is the fugitive slave act a kind of valid order or is that the abuse of order you know right. and then, you see what i'm saying and and then and then I think that's sort of what what makes those two concepts kind of difficult. Like, I so for example, I would say that God is just not sovereign. Right. Um, uh, uh, but but then and and I and I'd be willing to go with that for a few reasons. Like, I actually think Saint Paul makes some certain claims that way. You know. When he mm -hmm. names Satan as the prince of the world and 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 the god of the world and in 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 the book of Colossians, um, and and I think that there is something to that 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 perhaps God is eschatologically sovereign and then that that's why there needs to be a sort of remaking, if you will, of the world like a like a redeeming in a, in a sort of a full sense. But even then, like. We, we, there, there's some, there's some kind of, there's some very real tensions in, in that strand of Christian thought that might not be present in like the full Reformation strand of Christian thought. You know, everything, it, when Calvin says that everything that happens happens because of God's design and God's will, um, that means that there's some morally ambivalent things that, that take place in God's design. And Calvin says, well, what else do you want? Do you want a world owned by the devil? You know, like, like <laughs> or do you want a world that uh, uh, in some way we can say God still has sovereign control over God, God can make right. You know, it goes back to that Douglas John Hall problem, right? Uh, you know, that we talked about in the past. Douglas John Hall is willing to say that God can fail and that and that all of creation will descend into the nothing and all things are meaningless. He's, he's willing to say that, you know, because of his understanding of freedom and, and the way in which God is God. But like Douglas John Hall is also a white dude from Canada. Right. You know, <laughs> like James Cone's not willing to say that. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, and I think I think this also touches on well, well, this makes me think of my problem of evil class, where there were and and this is the type of discussion that I would love for us to have gotten into in that class, but right. not that we did. Um like there are people who were willing to say, yeah, God God is sovereign, God makes both good and evil, therefore there's no problem of evil. There's just pleasing God because God is in control of both of those things uh, and there were people who were insisting that like no god is good and therefore we have a problem of where evil comes from um and and people who were i uh, not willing to talk about um not willing to go like the power and principality route and so wanted to just blame evil wholly on humans um, and like within the human heart and having like individual responsibility for evil. And there are some people who are, you know, everything is systemic and, and no individual responsibility. Um, but we didn't get to, we didn't kind of get to get the, at the root of the matter, which I think um, are, are, is some of what we've talked about today. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like you very quickly, whenever anybody asks these kind of questions, like once you start poking at um, the fabric of society and how we, how we function, you very quickly end up kind of back at, if you're trying to get at the root of things, you end up with these questions, which I think are good and important questions. Well, yeah, I agree. I agree. And I don't have an answer for them. I, I appreciate Yelly's um, insistence in drawing the sacred in. Because even though Yelly himself is like the sacred is ambivalent, um, I don't necessarily think it is, you know? And so I actually think it, you know, cause I, I don't like, because I've taken a confessional stance. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, like, I think the sacred is the triune God who is the source of beauty, goodness and truth and all that really great stuff. Um, and so there's a sense in which uh, sovereignty, as Schmidt describes it, is is uh, Satan. You know, is is sort of the pure power, right? Like the uh, the 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 power to decide on the state of exception, and 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 so like I'm willing to to go down certain roads, but. Um, uh, it would also require a, a whole host of, of descriptions about human nature and about what I think is sort of um, um, ultimate, you know, like I, I think that uh, we would have to say that, that at least politically, if we're going to talk about God being good, you know, kind of at its root, that, that God doesn't declare things good. God is good and, and good is, is objective, sort of. That's sort of what I mean. Transcendent is really what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore has content. Um, then we kind of have to, we, that, that notion, I think, challenges some of the liberal political notions of liberation. Uh, not all of them, but some of them. You know the this no, the 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 narrative of of the liberal project of be of the human being being liberated of of constraints is the highest good, right? The highest good is the human being can make themselves the way they want to be made, and to pursue the ends that they want to pursue, and to be freed to to you know live a life. That, that seems fine or good or, or happy to them. Like, I think, I think, not to beat this to death, but I think the reason why Schmidt's logic of sovereignty traps us is because it is, is because Schmidt says, of course, to that. Of right. course, that is the liberal project. And the only way that works that that's the highest good is within is is if it is powered by by the ultimate sovereign by the one who decides you know on the state of exception who decides what laws apply and what laws don't you know if everybody wants to be sovereign because that's just another way of saying sovereignty if everybody wants to be sovereign, if everybody wants to be able to exist, you know, trans outside of constraints, then then that which powers the whole thing is is he who is without constraint. 
Um, but the good is by its nature a constraint. Right. That's what I was like about to say. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, you like you do. There's th this is the the funny thing about the good or claiming that like God is good and sovereign is that um, it it kind of logically doesn't work. Like you do just have to be confessional about it. Um, yeah, and then decide to uh, to go from there, <laughs> uh, which we don't like. I don't no. like. Let me I don't, speak for everybody, but I think I don't like it. I don't like that either. And the last last thing I'll say on it is one of the reasons why I don't like it is because I it the 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 kind of inner logic of it does I think challenge in an uncomfortable way some of the other things that we really think are good. Right. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that they're mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean that it, it doesn't mean that it, it, it destroys or, or ruins the process, right? Like, um, you know, I, I one of the books we read in that class is a book by Saba Mahmoud, who's an, a, a Muslim scholar who studied uh, um, Muslim women in Egypt and and their role in the in the mosque movement there of of trying to become more pious and more learned and more um, uh, engaged Muslims as women. And, Sa and Saba Mahmoud in her book says, um, you know, I, even, I'm, I'm Muslim, I've trained as a, as a Western thinker um, and, and the categories, the feminist categories of liberation, agency, all of that stuff, uh, um, only obscures what is happening in the lives of these women. It, it, it does not help us in understanding them because they are, they are working with totally different conceptions of the good, totally different conceptions of, of you know, life and agency and all of this stuff. That if we begin to ask questions like, you know, what is keeping you from from flourishing as a human being? What is, you know, if we begin to ask as typical feminist liberation questions of these women, we discover that their answers and our questions do not match. Like, like it doesn't it doesn't shed light on them, and and in fact, we discover that our own conceptions of feminist liberation are localized. Mm -hmm. that they are not universal. They are rooted in a liberal project. That might be true, it might be great, but, but is definitely not true, you know, for the agency of these women that I'm studying. And I told that to my, my dear friend, Brandy, uh, after I read it, and she was like, she was like, uh, no, these women have merely internalized their oppression. And I'm like, are you, and Brandy's an atheist. I'm like, are you prepared to say that everything is contextual except for that claim? <laughs> that, right. that, that everything is localized and non-universal except for, for the, the kind of feminist political project, which is of course universal. 
and not rooted in a genealogy and not rooted in, in systems of thought. And Brandy said, no, fuck. <laughs> 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 uh, and so I don't know, like, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that. I don't either. But I'm sure we will continue to talk about it. One day. Podcast. <laughs> One day. One day. So what are you doing, Joe? I, I talked for way too long. What are you doing? Um, uh, stuff. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm very, very productive. Um, I am, I got signed up to be a poll worker. And so I've been doing that um, in a, in an early voting uh, location in my area. Um, and that's been uh, really good, <laughs> surprisingly good. I had my first kind of squirrely moment uh, yesterday, but outside of that, um, it's been really nice to see uh, young voter turnout <laughs> and see people. I We've seen a bunch of people who this is their first time voting uh, and not all 18 year olds, but like other people who have decided to be engaged this year, which is great. Um, have gotten to like, feel like I'm actually helping people do something. Um, mm -hmm. And then the people that I am working with at the, at the polling station are all, have all been, we, I, I've really lucked out to have a group of people who want to like think and talk about things. Cause it hasn't been, we haven't been slammed. We don't have long lines um, just because the County has a lot of polling stations and right. Um, not as many people. <laughs> so we, we're in one of those situations where it's fine. Um, and, but so we've had downtime to kind of talk through things and um, they, they have been like very generous and, and very interested in what I'm doing and uh, like just talking through, especially science and religion. Like they really wanted to engage on that. Um, but we've also just talked about like great concerts we've gone to or um, like how we ended up in this area. There's a, a gentleman who used to be a professor at the university, a professor of history. And so we've talked through a lot of kind of big picture historical things. Um, and that's been fun. Got to hold a baby yesterday, which was cool. Yeah. Uh, it, well, a toddler. Um, and so he was like, he was wanting to go toddle around the whole room while his mom was voting. And I was like, is it okay if I just like occupy his attention while you do this? And she was like, sure, go ahead. And then he like ran away from me and she's like, you can pick him up. And I was like, okay, great. And so picked him up and like walked him around the room and showed him all the things and it was fun. Um, there was a dog that just randomly wandered in and then wandered out. <laughs> a giant dog, like a St. Bernard, but like wow. full size. Yeah, just kind of like, walked into the polling station and one of the one of the workers like walked over to him and like whistled at him and like he followed the worker out of the polling station <laughs> it was just it's been a time um so that's been good and that's taken up a lot of uh taken up a lot of my energy and it's you work like seven eight hour shifts and so it's been like doing a job where I have to clock in and clock out <laughs> right right it's been surprisingly great um so i've enjoyed that uh we did i did have i uh, i had to step out and get some air and and i ended up calling ian yesterday because we had a 
somebody who was very clearly a, a Trump supporter, and I say this because he refused to wear a mask and was very vocal and aggressive about wanting to make sure that his party affiliation was Republican, uh, but we can't change that. Like you can, in North Carolina, you can register, you can do same day registration, you register and you go vote um, during early voting. Uh, but you can't change your party. One, because it doesn't change the ballot that you get at all. Um, but two, like we would have to completely re-register you. And I'm not sure why that is the way it's set up, but that's the way it's set up. Um, and so this man was just very aggressive about that uh, and was just being an intimidating and an ugly presence. Um, and I say ugly in the the way that in like the, in the fullest sense of the word <laughs> in the way that like your southern grandmother says ugly like you're just being ugly um do you all say that up north uh well i am a southerner and so of course we do <laughs> cool but, well, but before you were a southerner <laughs> before i was a southerner i don't even remember that life okay anymore. uh no <laughs> My my grandmother is was is from Altoona, Pennsylvania. So she says a number of insane things that I don't fully wrap my brain around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um anyway, and so like somebody else dealt with this person, but I had to I had to decompress after that because that's a it just wasn't great. It wasn't great. It would be it would be also equally not great if a Democrat came in and did that. I so did something like that, but it's just less likely in this political climate that a Democrat's going to do that. Um, I also can't even imagine what would prompt a Democrat to be as excited about being a Democrat as that. Right. There's, there's, <laughs> I have to vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. I, I can imagine me going, well, I'm here to vote for Joe Biden. Because I did. I did do that. Like when I early voted in Virginia. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I'm I'm unaffiliated, and I'm I am not unaffiliated because I'm trying to decide between the two parties. Because uh, because we can have a quick talk right now if you if you don't know who to vote for. Right, no, I've already voted. Um, <laughs> okay, but. Uh, I like the uh, in North Carolina, if you're unaffiliated, then you can vote in either primary. And so I like the idea of being able to go vote in a Republican primary against a Tea Party candidate. No, that's a good call. Whatever we call it now. Um, but I also like know that both parties fail me and I just want freedom from that. Um, I, I understand. I on Facebook the other day uh, jumped onto a quick thread. Where, I, where somebody was like, who do I vote for? And I was like, well, if you're, if you're thinking about voting for uh, Donald Trump, might I instead recommend sitting at home? Right. <laughs> or if you have to vote for somebody who's not Joe Biden, I'm trying to get roughly four to 5% of Trump voters to vote for Joe Jorgensen. That's that would be nice too. <laughs> if we could just shave that off, that would be really good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Trump is the incumbent. He is on defense. Like third party is going to hurt him more than it's going to hurt Joe Biden, assumedly. Anyway, there's also been like people who come in with like the thin blue line hats and shirts and I just wave them to another worker because I don't yep. need to interact with them. 
Blue Lives Matter, unless, of course, one of them shows up on my property. Then Blue Lives Better Get the Hell Out. My fear is also bad. Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, Just saying. Blue Lives Matter because I ain't never seen one. <laughs> <laughs> Police don't come to my house. <laughs> yeah, so that's been... But, like, for the most part, people have been, like, kind and, and excited about voting in in a positive way and um but but like you do you do still see characters who come in who are clearly like i'm gonna vote the way i'm gonna vote and i'm in your face about it and i uh don't enjoy those individuals but they leave very quickly so it's fine um so yeah i've done a lot of that um it's charge conference season which we talked about Mm -hmm. a lot last year because it was my first one this year I have, um, since I have uh, two charges, it's different, um, but both churches are, because of the pandemic, a lot of stuff is, we're not looking to make any big changes. And so a lot of this is just kind of rubber stamping the same information as last year and going on. So I'm not, I'm not really bothered about it this year, but it does mean that we have meetings and, and that's fine. Um, I did a sermon on Sunday that I was um, rather proud of and think that if I had done it in seminary, I would have gotten an A plus right out of the gate (laughs) Um, because it was the the greatest commandment uh, in Matthew 22. And I knew that I couldn't preach on what I think loving your neighbor means because they don't want to hear that from me. Uh, And so instead, I just talked about... um, the challenge of figuring out like what love means um, and how we can ground that, how our love of God grounds what our love of neighbor looks like. And mm-hmm. I use Plato, like I start, I like through the whole sermon, I, like, and I'm just explaining like really basic, basic Wesleyan understandings of grace <laughs> as we go through it and explaining the Trinity. Um, and just like really just laying out some really standard doctrinal stuff. Um, and I'm like playing with Plato the whole time. And like, I have, I, I make different images for the first person, the Trinity. I make different images to talk about Jesus and make different images to talk about the spirit and um, how the spirit guides us in different situations. Um, and at the end of it, I was like, so you just have to, uh, so the, the the thing that's before us is what will we allow God to mold us into? Um, you know, like not a very threatening sermon <laughs> and just like, just kind of fun. And I would have sure. killed it at seminary um, and just crickets, nothing from either church. <laughs> like cool. nobody was like, oh, that was interesting or, or uh, I, you know, not even just like a comment about the Play-Doh. But I did get one gentleman who, this is the guy, when I was late that one Sunday, uh, that happened to be his first Sunday visiting our church. And he came back the next Sunday, which was nice. Um, And the next Sunday when he came back, he was like, well, you know, I've been a, I may have told this on the podcast. I complain about it a lot. Um, he's like, I've, uh, I see that you, you were here uh, on time this morning. Good job. And I was like, I was even early, you know, like making a joke about it because, well, you know, I've managed to be on time to church about 400 times. So you've got some catching up to do. And <laughs> well, I, fuck you, dude. 
Exactly. <laughs> the like, point of comments like that. Where does I, that come from? Just being a dick. Um. Anyway, and so I like laughed it off, but like I sure as shit have been on time or early to church many more than 400 times in my life, right? I've gone to multiple services at most Sundays of my life and I've been on time for the majority of them by far. Like this is one of three times in my memory that I have been late for church. So fuck him. Um, but then this Sunday after this sermon, he goes, you know, there's a lot of work in that sermon. And I laughed at it. He goes, you know, you could have just plowed a field and explained that to us while you were doing it. And I was what like, is, what is this guy saying? Who is he talking to? I don't Jesus know. Christ. And so I like laughed it off and I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. He's like, anyway, we're going back to Florida. See ya in the spring. And I was like, see ya. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. Oh gosh. So, and, and like, that's the most substantive comment that I got off of this sermon. Now, admittedly, like I did not, I didn't spend hours and days planning this, right? Like I came up with the idea in lectionary group and like molded around during the week and then like wrote my script on Saturday night. Like it wasn't, sure. I didn't throw a ton of effort into it. It was just stuff that I know, but like, I was really happy with it. Um, just goes to show you that even when uh, even when you're doing everything that they ask you to do, they still aren't gonna like you. Um, so so I've had a chip on my shoulder about that all week. <laughs> well, and, and and it just makes me like unenthusiastic about things. And I uh, so I had a I ended up doing like a little Twitter thread because that's I just shout into the void about things like this, uh, where yeah. I was like, you know, I I felt more fulfilled after doing a day of working the polls than I have felt in full time ministry. <laughs> like I was actually excited to go back and work the polls the next day. I was looking forward to something, and there's not a lot in ministry that I've looked forward to. And part of that is that like, uh, you know, the first Easter service that I presided over was after the granddaughter of the pastor that I ended up subbing for had died of sepsis at the age of like 11. Yeah. Um, and so like that Easter was a little muted. And then um, this Easter like was COVID. So there's not a lot there. Uh, and Christmas is just stressful. Like there's just not... It, I have not looked forward to church and who knows how long. And so I, I was talking to another friend of mine who, um, who is, the church has not treated her well in ministry either. And she was like, you know, that's just, that's ministry burnout. That's what it is. And I'm like, you know, I, I feel it. Um, we, before this episode comes out, there's uh, an episode where Nick describes uh leaving and he's like you know I'm not burnt out I'm more on fire for ministry than I've ever been and I'm like well where the fuck are you getting that from because I'm not <laughs> like <laughs> I just yeah yeah I, and and I appreciate Nick and I think he's getting two great things and I think that um missional ministry outside of parish ministry is going to be really good for him and I'm excited that he's excited I uh, I just yeah, Jill, I mean, once again, by, by the way, when I was hanging out with Matt this week, after we went to see Matt and Amanda, Matt was like, Matt was like, I need you to, I need Joe to know that I shared 
the episode where with the guy who like interrupted her during service like with like Amanda who's his wife and, and some other folks and everybody is just like what the fuck is that bastard doing like like what is going on like we're all on Joe's side and I was like oh I know I know so you've got you've got lots of central Pennsylvanians who are like this is absurd um no I mean everybody outside of that church <laughs> has said that <laughs> oh goodness yeah yeah well if they ever want to start attending my church virtually to get my numbers up you know I won't say that no. I you know what if anybody would like to do that you let us know and we will we will send you the link that's a good point okay um yeah, like I think Joe, if I may, if if I may, if I may say a couple of things that you simply can ignore because who who, who the fuck am I? I think that um, a totally understand ministry burnout. Burnout's awful. You need to do what you need to do, and you know whatever decisions you make in order to rectify that burnout, I'm behind you 100. percent B. I really just think your your context is real shitty. I, I really don't think it has a whole lot to do with like you. It certainly doesn't have a whole lot to do with your DS. Your DS seems great. You know mm. what I mean? Like I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking about my context and how many of the things that caused me to consider doing something different than pastoring didn't have a whole lot to do with my congregation, but had more to do with where I was living, what was going on in me, the, the state of my conference, you know, stuff like that. But like, you know, as I reflect on all of the stuff that you and I have talked about, like you lack, and this isn't on you at all, this is on them, you know, for whatever reason, your context lacks bold people who are prepared to not only stand by you, but shut down nonsense, even if they don't agree with you all the time. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you, you don't, you just don't have the people that, that every pastor is supposed to have, Joe. Like this isn't the, you know, the, the stuff you're experiencing is not, is not normal stuff. Right. You know, I experience bad shit too. Like we all do. And some, some churches are more toxic than others, you know, even while they're in that sort of healthy range, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but like a, a church that has, you know, the spirit within them and, and potential to move forward and, and even a little bit of help will have people who, who regardless if they think that you are, you know, right all the time or agree with everything you're saying, who, who are prepared to boldly support you stand by you um like matt and i were talking about you know this guy interrupting you in service and matt's like can you even imagine how that would have gone you know with you like the only reason that happened is because joe is a woman and that's ridiculous that came out of matt's mouth by the way so just let you know thanks matt. matt matt sees it matt friend of the pod thank you and and i'm like and i'm like i agree but it's more than that because yes Joe is a woman and, and a lot of what's going on, I think is sexist bullshit. But the other side is, is that apparently nobody at Joe's church is, is filled with the divine figure at all, you know, who are prepared yeah. to like, like, like if that would have happened to me at my church, like even if I was a woman, 
I can count on, I can count at least three or four people to, to immediately stand up and tell that guy to sit the hell down. Like, like just, just because of the kind of people they are, just because of the way they're discipled, just because of, 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 of how inappropriate they would have found that. Even if I, even if I were you, you know what I mean? Like, even if our roles were switched and that's, that's because of, the health of the of the congregation you know that that doesn't have a whole lot to do with you and i that has a whole lot to do with the holy spirit working in a place and then a place being receptive over a long period of time to that and so like i say all of that to say if if only this appointment would have been different mm -hmm. because because i don't think it's i take this for what it is i don't think it's pastoral ministry itself because I think you're quite good at it. And I think that, and I think that lots of it uh, could give you life. Um, but I think, it, I really think it's that context, Joe. Like, I think, I think it's just one of those, one of those lost contexts, you know, if I was your DS, you know, and, and all this was happening for whatever it's worth, I'd be like, okay, well, congratulations on your last pastor, because what yeah. I can't imagine uh subjecting somebody else to you people i can't imagine why that would be good so figure it out you know and that would be it because that that kind of stuff is just always incorrect it's always uncalled for it's it all it it always shows a a spiritual anemia you know that that might not be worth salvaging and if you had a different context like if you had people who who like like if you had problems like anybody else, but just had just had bold people who are interested in following God and who are because of that prepared to stand by you, um, I think that we would be having fundamentally different conversations. Not just because different things would be happening, but like I don't think you'd be so burned out. I think you're right. Um... I, I think that there's a lot of factors going into it. Um, but I think the truth of, of both of these churches is that they have been, um, there has been a group of five or six women at one church and three or four women at the other church who have been like pulling these churches along for the sake of community for the sake of the community that has been there, um, while the part-time pastors that they've had, that they've been assigned, um, have, uh, uh, I don't want to say phoned it in because that's not necessarily true because like good ministry has been done here, but just didn't, didn't engage in ministry in the way that I need to uh, and that the, in the way that like the spirit calls me to. And so um, I think that the DS was hoping that like having me here would be a, um, a shock, a shock to the system, but in a good way um, mm -hmm. of just like, here's, here's something to like, get the heart beating again, you know, here's something to re-energize. Um, but with the pandemic and with those motherfucking doors and with <laughs> and with the state of the denomination right like and 
And also like with me really battling depression and suicidal ideation when I got here, um, which is like not my fault, but not helpful <laughs> um, and, and everything else, right? Like all of the things of starting a new pastorate apply here um, and all the things of starting your first pastorate at a seminary apply here. But like, this was always going to be a difficult appointment for anybody. Um, and I think that I've handled it well, like as well as I can. It's just that um, the shock to the system came at an inconvenient time for world events. And instead of re-energizing, instead of restarting the heart, it has just caused the body to like flood with anxiety. <laughs> and so, right. so they, because they have tried so hard to be there and to just try to hold on until like God did something. <laughs> and then I, uh, you know, like God probably did something and they um, were relieved and thought that they could just go on with their day now. And that this, all of this was my problem and no longer their problem. And, um, you know, when you yourself are exhausted, it's very difficult to be bold. And so I don't, I don't blame them necessarily um, for, for a lot of the ways that their inaction and their lack of courage has hurt me. Um, but like the fact on the ground remains that I, they're, they're not capable of being a, the kind of church that I really long to lead. And so that leaves me in this kind of precarious position of uh, trying to be the leader that they need and and it leads to burnout right because that that's just that's a chasm that's really difficult to uh, that you can't jump across and if nobody's willing to help you build a bridge across you're just stuck you know mm -hmm. um, but we'll figure it out um, so yeah that's the that's the rosy update from North Carolina. Um, and I think we are, we're at, well, we're over an hour, so I don't think we need to chat about a topic, but any final thoughts with all that? No, man, just keep doing it, man. Keep doing the stuff that, uh, is, is filling you up and screw those people. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> well, uh, on that, on that bright and shiny note, do you, uh, do you want to sign us off? Sure. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. We're feminists here. We are feminists. Hashtag feminism. <laughs> Hashtag feminism. <laughs>